you should be focusing most of your efforts on like the big needle movers, the things that are working, building that engine. And then the other 20 to 30% of like, what's the future stuff? How do I like future proof? How do I invest in some potential experiments or longer term plays um, for the business? Love that. People are calling this a masterclass in marketing in the comments. So that's, <laughs> I, I think we're giving the, uh, the, the people what they wanted out of this session. Hey everyone, I'm Chris Ronzio, founder and CEO of Trainual, and this is Organized Chaos. On every normal episode, you hear me talk about building your playbook. Well, we actually have an event every year called Playbook over at Trainual, and this session is a clip from Playbook 2022. That's our annual event at Trainual, and it features some of the top business leaders in the world. So we've reformatted these sessions for the podcast so that you can enjoy them wherever you are, totally free. This session is hosted by Jonathan Ronzio, Trainual's CMO, and my brother. All right, everybody, we are back uh, to continue Playbook 2022 here. What a killer session with Jason Freed from Basecamp. And hey, I actually can't believe that Jason just broke the news uh, that Basecamp 4 just dropped at Playbook here. That's pretty cool. Um, we've got two more sessions for you this afternoon. This next one is going to be fun. This is uh, is with Lisa Barnett, who's the CEO and founder of Little Spoon. But on with me right now is not Lisa. Actually, I have a co-host tuning in. So uh, this is Director of Marketing, Jamie Hartman. Jamie, just back from maternity leave from baby number two. We were chatting in the studio and, and, uh, and I was like, Jamie, would you want to do a session? She's like, yeah, I'd actually love to talk to Lisa from Little Spoon. I was like, well, come on in. Let's do it. Uh, Jamie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Lisa, super excited for this. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to take a big scoop out of a little spoon. And actually, um, I got to share with you right now. This is my little guy. This is Chase. Um, and that is little spoon coconut mango puree all over his face. He, I love it. He loves it too. Um, <laughs> in the last month and a half, we've had the subscription and he's been digging into all the purees and transitioning into like the more solid stuff and um, and so we're, we're big fans and I can't wait to hear more about, um, really just the whole journey and your scale story and your model and all of that. Um, you're so excited that you're <laughs> one of our customers too. Well, I guess you want to just tell us a little bit more about little spoon. Tell, tell our audience here. I will. Well, many of you probably guess if you didn't look it up or, or understand what Chase is eating there, but Little Spoon is a baby and kids food company. So we are a national direct-to-consumer brand that manufactures and produces food and nutritional products for everything from your first solids all the way through the big kid years. So we're hyper-focused on early childhood nutrition, and we're really about reinventing the modern parents' experience around keeping their kid healthy. So our mission is how can we make keeping your kid healthy actually simpler and easier as a parent. <clears throat> so we have a platform, again, all direct to consumer where we offer anything from super simple purees for like the early eater to chunky blends to biteable type of, you know, finger finger pitching um, foods all the way through um, big kid meals and snacks and smoothies and everything in between. 
Um, so we've been around for just over four years. Uh, I've launched over 100 different products in that time and have, you know, become one of the fastest growing baby and kids food brands in the nation. Um, and in that process, I've built a large parenting community, which I'm sure we will touch on later. Um, so that's a little bit about what we do. Uh, many avenues I could go into from there, but I'll, I'll pause there. Well, why baby and kids food? Let's let's go there. Like, why was this the the thing for you? Yeah, um, little spoon and, and baby and kids food. It, it's I came at it in in a couple of different ways, and I have co-founders in the business, and it was one of those interesting uh, situations where all four of us uh, were kind of thinking about this general problem from very different lenses and perspectives. And, you know, through stroke of luck and undergraduate education connected with each other to build what is now Little Spoon. Um, so personally, you know, uh, just taking a step back, my background, I've been in the consumer brands world um, pretty much since the beginning. Started out more on the strategy and data analytics side and then quickly moved over to the operating side where I was building, launching, and incubating digitally native brands for large traditional corporations who had yet to enter the day and age of direct-to-consumer and even e-commerce uh, in spaces like food, fashion, um, and beauty. Uh, right before starting Little Spoon, I was working in venture capital, um, and I was pretty obsessed with a couple of different verticals. Um, one of them uh, was a consumer that I was always thinking about and targeting, which is the female consumer. Um, unsurprisingly, I am a female consumer, so that, you know, I guess you could call me uh, selfish and I want to solve problems for myself um, and also my, my other fellow gender, but found myself centering a lot around various challenges that a woman might face through different life stages, um, many transformational stages, one of them being becoming a parent. And I started looking at this generation of new mothers and new parents that were coming into the fold. And I found it very interesting. It was my generation, the millennial generation. And this was, this is a generation that, you know, compared to other generations, statistically looks very, very different, right? Like these are parents who are, you know, bringing these behaviors and standards that have driven disruption in pretty much every other consumer category. You think about like pet food, you think about mattresses, like literally every other consumer category. But for some reason, back in like 2016, 2017, when we were starting Little Spoon and then launching Little Spoon, none of those changes were brought to the space of your children. Um, so why was it that the decisions we were making for ourselves, for our pets, had better options than the decisions we were making uh, concerning childcare uh, and nutrition for children. And, you know, that became even more interesting to me when you started to look at the burden that, you know, parenting has on this generation specifically, and especially women. Um, you know, childcare disproportionately falls to the woman, the mother, generally speaking, and statistically speaking, we're also in a generation of households that are more likely than not dual income, which means that everybody has less time. Um, yet we have a better understanding of food and health and nutrition. So we all kind of came together and we're like, this makes no sense. It's crazy that there's this gap between what we know and what we want for ourselves and for our children and what is actually available to us. So we really came together and said, how can we change that that reality? Surely we can make a higher quality product that doesn't break the bank, that's convenient, that empowers parents and especially mothers to do 
everything that they want to do during and beyond this life stage. Um, so that was kind of how how Little Spoon got started. Um, really just trying to close an insane trade off. And by the way, I'm not a parent yet myself. So you can call me extremely proactive uh, and extremely uh, or or anxiety ridden um, that I couldn't see myself entering that life stage without closing the gap and fixing this problem first. Lisa, coming from the venture capital world, I think that's super interesting. What are some of the lessons that you learned working at a VC firm when you started Little Spoon? Like, what were you like? Okay, these are the mistakes that these startups keep making. Like, Little Spoon's going to do it differently. Yeah, um, I think a couple that are just like macro and maybe some that are more specific to the space that I'm in. So starting at the macro level, one of the biggest learnings that I had being in venture capital first is really about how most founders early on actually fail because of lack of focus. Uh, my team loves when I say this, but it's like, you're more likely to die of indigestion, not starvation. And what that essentially means is like, you're not going to be short of ideas. You're, you're going to be short of resources, right? So you really have to focus and prioritize and be methodical about what you're going after and what you're trying um, because you simply cannot get it all done. You can't, you know, try every experiment, launch every product perfectly. Um, you have to really say, these are the three things that I think are going to be the biggest needle movers and kind of go from there. Uh, the biggest mistakes I saw, especially for early stage venture, which is the stage that I was investing in, was simply teams just lacking focus and trying to do too much. Um, the second piece, which, you know, probably will, will sound like a theme because I always map back to this is not being obsessed with the problem that you're solving, but rather selling the solution. Um, it's, it's, the thing is like your solution is going to change 500 times in the trajectory of building a company. And if you're so focused on the product idea or the service idea or whatever it is that was in your head that you envisioned, you're going to fail multiple times over because you're going to be resistant to listening to feedback. You're going to be resistant to kind of like the scary word of pivoting, which isn't a bad thing in a company as long as you're prepared and do it smartly. Um, but if you're focused on solving the problem, you'll be more in tune with your market and finding that product market fit faster because you'll be more open to iterating. And you'll be more open to finding solutions to a problem you didn't even necessarily think of before you were in market. Um, and then I'd say the third thing that's more specific to the space. Um, I remember when I left my my last VC firm, we were investors in a number of food delivery spaces that um, were, were failures. Um, and so I got a lot of questions uh, around like, are you seriously leaving this job as a partner of this VC firm to start a food company that you've just watched two different companies fail like multiple times over? And the answer is yes. Um, but if you're going into a space that maybe has skeletons um, or you're thinking about like, what's the right business model? Like, you know, D to C in of itself is not an innovation. It's a business model that has to make sense. Um, you really need to think about why your business model or concept makes sense, right? Like if I just wanted to start like a snacks company for kids, I would never have gone direct to consumer. But our idea was more how to create a one-stop shop and platform that have a bunch of different products united under a product philosophy where you can take people through a system where they never have to think again about what's next for their child's eating journey. And it really unlocks a lot of time, resources, and energy. Um, that 
owning that platform made a lot of sense for the business model. It made a lot of sense for us to do food delivery. If it were for a different category or even the problem we we're trying to solve was different, maybe we would have went straight to the direct, you know, retail grocery route. How much of that pre-work did you put in to like, obviously you, you were, you understand who you wanted to serve and you were understanding the market you wanted to go into, but like, these days, it seems like putting a, a business plan together is essentially dead. It's like you just act on the business idea and you figure out the plan along the way. So, but but it sounds like you had a lot of ducks in a row. So where were you at with like defining that? You know, I, I've heard your positioning statement, like the um, the Caspia or Casper of baby food or the Warby Parker of baby food, right? Like was that defined then or did that come as you as you built? So I'd say like the traditional business plan, like, first of all, everything looks more buttoned up in hindsight, right? Like everything looks like an overnight success. Like we've been thinking about this problem for over six years and working on this. So I'll start with that because I remember, uh, especially early on getting into the startup world, feeling like it was like, how is everyone else doing it but there's like years of failure and like pivoting and work that goes into the stuff that doesn't make it into the media story right uh media stories are meant to be neat and meant to make sense um unfortunately so I'll, I'll start yeah i'll start with that so that nobody nobody's feeling bad there um what i will say though is that there are certain fundamentals that I think have to be in place before starting a business that you agree upon. Like one needs to be like, what is the problem you're truly trying to solve? Um, I, I anticipated probably being a broken record, but I feel pretty strongly about that being a differentiator in terms of your focus and your ability to execute. Um, again, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's like sheerly about execution and iterating um, that makes a team successful versus not successful among other things. Um, so I think like having that problem solidified and unified across, you know, your partners, co-founders or yourself um, is really important to start out. Second, conviction in a business model. And that really comes from understanding the consumer's problem and the consumer need. So there is some level of understanding research analysis you might want to do or should do to really validate that this is the right business model that A, can solve that problem and that B, can create value for your stakeholders, AKA, can you make money? Um, these things are fun. Like you can't just go out and say like, I have this cool product idea. Like I'm going to launch this and see what happens. Like that's a bad idea. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you won't necessarily see success. Um, but if we're, if you're trying to think, how can I change the landscape of a certain category, really having those two things locked in is very important. Uh, third thing, especially in the consumer space, but I would argue this is important for any company, even if you're in the enterprise space as well, is really understanding who you are as a brand, right? Who do you want to be? What do you want to stand for? What is the reality you're looking to change? Um, I think that affects how you go after getting those first customers, how it, it affects your go-to-market strategy. It affects the DNA of your company and your brand. Um, and without that conviction and understanding, you, you will lack focus. Um, so I think those are the three fundamentals where I'd say it doesn't matter what you're working on. You have to have those in play. The rest, uh, might depend on the situation. You did raise venture capital for Little Spoon, right? S 7 million. Am I, am I correct? Um, no, we've raised a bit over 50 million. Over 50 uh, now? Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. I, looked at, I must have looked at the first article. You know uh -huh. what? And Crunchbase is always outdated, so don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so did you raise to launch or did you like prove your market and a repeatable like acquisition funnel and then go raise? Um, a little bit of both. So we didn't raise like proper institutional or what I would call venture money um, until our seed round. And that was very difficult for us to raise. Before that, we had small angel type checks in the business to help fuel the business, get the products off the ground, build sort of, I would call it not an MVP, but a stage after that, um, you know, a functioning website and everything like that. Um, so we did take in some angel, angel, you know, money that was more strategic from people who are in the space or related to the space, as well as ourselves investing in the company. Uh, once we were six months into market, uh, we went out to raise our seed round, which was again, our first venture capital money. That was incredibly difficult. Like having six months of data, basically, it, it could actually end up being harder to raise venture money with six months of data versus having no months of data. Because now you have a little bit to be dangerous, but not enough for them to believe you if it's a good story, you know? Because it's like, well, it's only six months. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, raising venture money that early on or early on in general is really about finding like the right marriage. It's literally like dating. And I'm not the first person to make this analogy, but like it's it's literally just finding someone who has the same alignment of beliefs that you do. Um, the biggest learning I had going out to raise, and I didn't even have this learning being on the venture capital side. It really only came when I was out there like pounding the pavement and getting no's all the time, is finding an investor that believes in the market opportunity. Like if you're convincing someone that this is a good market to invest in, that the market's changing, that's a big opportunity, particularly in venture where they're looking for outsized returns, you're never going to raise that money that early on. Like maybe once you have metrics and data, but like you're never going to win the game of convincing someone that this is a market. And that happened a lot to Little Spoon. You know, on the onset, we only launched with our pureed baby blends, right? This is just pureed food. You, you know, Chase is, Chase is in this stage right now. It's literally like from six months to maybe 10, 11 months years old that they're eating pureed baby food. It's a very short lifespan. There's a ton of organic, what we call organic churn, which is literally like, you're going to age out of it. There's nothing we could do. We could be as cheap as possible. We could be as amazing as possible. You simply stop feeding your child period baby food at some point. That's really hard to raise against because, you know, an investor is looking at, okay, you are constantly churning out people. How are you going to build the right lifetime value of this consumer? And so they had to buy into this vision of this platform that we now are today and that we're continuing to build. That was hard to do in the beginning. And so you had to believe, you had to find people to believe, hey, there is a problem. And it's not just about the fact that like shelf-stable baby food is literally sitting on the shelf longer than the kid eating. It's been alive and the other convenient options are not there. Uh, it's, it's also believing like we have a generation of parents that are now into the fold that are looking for a different experience. And we have a way of disrupting both on the value axes as well as that experience axes that will prove out to help build a, you know, a new household name, not just for baby food, but for early childhood nutrition and for this generation of parents. Like not everyone's going to buy that. Right. So I would say like finding that market fit is really important um, between an investor and the founder and startup, particularly before you have enough business data to prove it out. So what what was your go-to-market strategy? So you, I read that you guys delivered 1 million meals in the first year, which is absolutely incredible. So how did you do that? 
Thank you. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing uh, even even doing it like I don't you know, of course, a lot. Of, I feel very fortunate and lucky and I, I attribute that all to this incredible customer base that we've cultivated. Um, and that's really become the competitive mode and story for Little Spoon for the past four and a half years. Um, early on, we had very few resources and wanted to prove out this concept so that we could go out and raise venture money. Um, we decided to kind of do an early access launch. We chose a couple of different cities, New York, which is our home city, including, um, and launch, you know, our, our product line with a campaign, uh, which was called No More Old Baby Food. So uh, I'm pretty sure the microsite still exists, but if it doesn't, the YouTube does, if you're, if you're curious. Um, but the idea was, and, you know, this, this stems from a philosophy of brand building that I have developed over the years, which is the best brands are built like social movements. Um, when you think about like a really good social movement, they are really good at unifying and cultivating a base to like rally against a reality that people disagree with. They're really good at establishing an enemy for everyone to unite under. They have clear values. They get people to like do your work for you. It's very word of mouth driven. And so I get a lot of inspiration as a marketer from social movements and successful social movements. And so when we launched Little Spoon with few resources, we were like, the only way for this to be successful, given we have maybe 50K for a year that we could spend in marketing, we need to get people to rally behind us. We need this to be a word of mouth driven business. And part of the reasons I was so excited about starting a company in this space is because parents are, they talk, right? And those of you who are parents, probably know this, you get a lot of, you know, recommendations from fellow parents, um, good or bad. Um, so it can make or break you as a brand in this space. And so we launched No Moral Baby Food. It was a campaign, both, you know, had a video as well as a bunch of microsite, a, a microsite with a bunch of facts. That was pretty much just like, we know we can't actively like, call out a specific brand. Like we weren't about to go to market and be like, Gerber sucks. Like just wasn't the game we wanted to play, wasn't the bone we wanted to pick. But we did want to establish an enemy and we wanted to do it in a way that wasn't necessarily making a claim like this food is bad for you, but rather was helping consumers pique their interest and learn more. We wanted people to just educate themselves and come to their own decision around, okay, I actually prefer to feed my child something like Little Spoon, which is fresh and organic and has nothing added to and isn't using heat pasteurization the way shelf-stable food is. And so no more all baby food is basically the implication of like, wait a second, what do you mean old baby food? There's old baby food. And you look, you know, and our whole video is about kind of like, creating these visual cues around shelf-stable food versus fresh food. And that really got people talking, uh, got people researching, and we created a landing page and a whole site, including all of those facts. And we had, and then we had a 24-7 texting service that was ready on our website to answer all of the questions and start those conversations and dialogues. And that really ballooned into a really successful um, launch that we then cultivated by essentially saying we want to get to this many customers and we want to make sure we speak directly to every single one of those customers and make sure every single one of them gets at least two orders. And that's what we did. And sometimes really unscalable work in the beginning becomes scalable because it creates a flywheel and momentum that you could then build from. Um, so there are many more details and directions I could go into there, but that's kind of the high level of how we got Little Spoon off the ground. That's so smart. I love that story. All right. So 
it's know, know your problem, know your customer, know your enemy. And I love that you did a very brand agnostic enemy that piqued interest and that was tied together in a super holistic, like experiential campaign. Very, very smart. Um, so what was the team size at that time to execute on that? Uh, when we launched, uh, we were, so I have three co-founders, uh, which is great because we covered a lot of basis. Um, and the four of us have like completely opposite backgrounds. So that was like a really, you know, not necessarily, not, I wouldn't call it a happy accident. We obviously knew that going into it, but that was helpful. We had five of us. Um, so just our first employee when we launched the business and we stayed by the way, very lean up until, um march march april 2020 covid um so we were only like nine people going into covid um so and that's including me and my co-founders so very few employees for a long time now we're over 60. who was your first marketing hire our first hire and our first marketing hire is the same thing um was really a jack of all trades um person who was um kind of running community um so you're probably gathering. I have strong conviction in the power of community and what that could mean for a brand. Um, our community at Little Spoon is called Is This Normal? I always had a thesis that there would be community that kind of created this long-term sustainable engine for Little Spoon. Um, didn't know exactly how that was going to happen. Had no, you know, I didn't really have a full sense of it, but I knew that I needed a person on board who was a willing to like pound the pavement and b think about it from a holistic perspective i think sometimes you think community and you think okay we're doing these like brand value added initiatives but they're not really like engines i wanted to look at that as like your customer is your best source of acquisition community can be a performance marketing channel how do we look at it that way so found someone who I had previously known in, in my life. Um, and actually some of my co-founders also had known her on a personal level. She's no longer with us, but um, hired her. And she was really a great addition to the team from that regard, because I mean, again, regarding the unscalable activities, we went out in New York and said, okay, we're gonna secure 50 local partners. No idea if we'll still be partners with them in the future, but we need to get in front of people. And again, I gave you know my our community, I don't know, we maybe had like, $5,000 to work with for, you know, half a year. Um, so like no money to, to do any of this with. And she literally showed up to music classes, to places new parents were at. And she is a very personable person. Like her weapon is that like, she can talk to anybody and make anybody feel good. Right. And that's exactly what we needed. And that helped us again, build this momentum and flywheel in the beginning. And she became like best friends with not just partners, but like customers um, who she texts with on a daily basis. And again, it's not something you could do once you're 50, 60, 70,000 customers, but it's important early on because it really helped us understand who our customer base was and how can we unify community together. So that was a really important hire for us. You mentioned uh, parents talk, and I feel like that's true. Words couldn't be spoken, but obviously a, half, oh, half the stuff we bought for Chase when he was born was from like your recommendation, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I feel like there's like passion there. You know, there's there's such like a problem as a parent that you have with just like so many choices and looking at ingredients and it's so overwhelming. And so when you find things that you like, you're, you're then that's making your life easier and your children's healthier. Like that's the the gift that keeps on giving. So I, I assume that um, that 
sort of thinking is what led you to the, is this normal community? When did you launch that? Like how long after uh, founding the company? Yeah, that that's a lot of the thinking and and some of the trends. And I'll, I'll take you guys through a quick story because it's it's pretty interesting. Um, but we launched Is This Normal, uh, which was very intentionally launched as a sister brand, not like Little Spoons Community or anything like that. Uh, in really like in you know we had a precursor to it in the end of 2019 and then like into 2020 during COVID that's when it really like blossomed into what it what it really is today um so we had we launched the business in 2017 so a couple years after you know like it's it hadn't it wasn't formalized as a community until more recently um and is this normal like to your point um it's really touching on the fundamental challenge and reality that parents face, which is that there are so many questions, there are so many moments in your day to day where you fundamentally are like, tell me what I'm experiencing is normal. Tell me like these questions, these, you know, things that are happening to me, to my child, to my relationship, to my family are normal. And we saw that very early on, um, taking like a high level, again, Little Spoon's all about making parents' lives easier. And in the process of, of doing that with our food, we set up that 24-7 customer service um, hotline. And this was like a texting service meant to answer questions about anything you had with regard to our products. Um, but what ended up happening was we got so overwhelmed as co-founders waking up at different shifts, like answering these messages that we ended up hiring a customer as our first customer care part-time uh, member of the team and she's a mom uh she was a new mom she was like you know seven eight months into the game like wanted to get back into work and she was very personal um in these conversations people would find it very quickly because she would say like oh i fed my child this a couple months ago have you tried x y and z and so all of a sudden our customer care channel became like an unloading ground um, for people to think, oh, you're a new parent too. Like, I just want you to know, like, <laughs> this is how I'm feeling. Like, you felt this way too, right? Like, a lot of it was just uh, wanting to feel like you weren't the only one, which is a lot, you know, especially early on when your child's like an infant, that is how you're feeling as a parent, especially as a mother. Um, so kind of realized that there was a bigger opportunity there where we were having all these like repetitive one-to-one -one conversations. And it's like, okay, if we could just bring these one-to-one -one combos from one-to-one -to, -one to one to many, we could actually solve an even bigger problem. And by the way, add tremendous business value to us because people are our target audience is naturally looking for information and community um, on these topics that we can then capture and have an owned audience around, which is even more important for those of you who, and I imagine a lot of you are marketers on, on the phone, uh, on the Zoom here right now, ever important given, you know, what's been happening since iOS and just, you know, skyrocketing CPAs on most of our more like OG digital ad channels. So is this normal was a result of kind of our customer and mission centric mentality of like, we just want to focus on solving this problem for the customer and be responsive to that. And so that's where is this normal started. And it's now like an advice column where you can write in access like our expert panel, ask any question that you have, we will publish an answer to that. It'll be research driven. And it's also an owned community. We have over 700,000 uh, weekly newsletter subscribers. It's, it's a massive audience for us. Do you still have the, the texting service? We sure do. Uh, my care team doesn't like when I call it 24-7. It's probably like 27. Um, 
but I constantly say 24-7 and then get, get myself in trouble there, but it's nearly 24-7. Nearly on demand. Nearly, yes. Um, yeah, we're, we're and you can call and access us through phone support as well. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the skyrocketing CPAs and, and uh, like just generally what's been happening with like pure paid digital acquisition, right? I'd love to hear about what you're succeeding with in the rest of your marketing mix right now. So a lot of people can learn from this because people are struggling, right? The, the, the game is changing. And I think going forward, creative and brand and community, like we've been talking about them for a while, but it's, that's the future of how you win, right? But how do you approach succeeding in those tactics? What channels and, and what things are you doing with Little Spoon to, um, you know, outside of building the community to prove repeatable acquisition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you you said it well, and what I like to say about like returning to some of these core channels, um, it's literally like back to basics. Uh, it's like 1.0 version of marketing. Um, it's some of the things that are, are most important, of course, like establishing your brand identity, making sure you're solving a problem, doing that in a way that gets people talking, gets your customers to work for you is like the fundamental baseline. And then from there, it's like, what are the other basics and foundational pieces? SEO, which like people focus on, but like I have to say, you know, we were building this, slowly building is this normal content site for, for years before it did anything. Um, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of patience. And for those of you who are hoping to or currently run venture-backed companies, not all, not all VCs have the patience for it. You have to find the right VC, but it is worth doing. Um, outside of that, it's like, okay, you have your funnel, right? You have, how are you generating leads? How are you generating like emails cheaply um, or efficiently rather? Um, and that comes from the brand awareness campaigns, getting your customers to work for you, really figuring out like what is your organic content strategy across all of those channels is super important, super difficult. Um, but that's worked really well for us. We've figured out what kind of information our customers want. We're going after a segment that is looking for very specific information, and that's helped us tremendously. We still, by the way, play in Facebook and all the traditional channels. Don't want to paint a picture of like we've been able to build this business to where it is today with no money in, in Facebook marketing. Um, we absolutely play in that, but you really need to understand like what are you willing to spend um, and what part of the funnel is that driving mostly for you? So really having that like data underlay and understanding from, you know, and this is like, a, I, I hesitate to use the word attribution because I think people get obsessed with that. And it's more of an art than a science, which is my my strongest recommendation to all of you who are, are potentially wasting time getting too scientific about it. But understanding like what these channels that might be more expensive are playing in your stack is very important. Get those leads there. And then mid funnel is something that I think a lot of people haven't focused on. At Little Spoon, we've been very successful with email and SMS. Um, some of this is due to our customer base. Again, this is a customer that's looking for very specific information. And so those channels like play to our advantages, but you know, we get, we have, best in class open rates. We have a very highly engaged lead set um, and that mid funnel helps reduce CACs significantly because once we acquire that lead, we spend as little money as possible on retargeting, um, almost none. We've gotten very good. It used to be that it would take a month for us to convert leads. 
we're doing this in days now, right? Um, and that understanding that journey and not every purchase, by the way, is going to be able to move from a month to days. That's, you know, in my space that has worked, but you'll have your own analog to that, of course, too. Um, and then lastly, really understanding some of the accelerants to, to doing well in some of these digital ad platforms. So, we're all like probably talking about TikTok and trying to understand TikTok, but like the the higher level learning for for Little Spoon is like okay, we need to like figure out how to do well in some of these channels that require very native content and very like trend based information and content development. And so what we've done that isn't unique to Little Spoon, but if you can build the engine right, I think this can be quite powerful, particularly for B two C companies. Is locking in your influencer strategy with your content strategy. So like really figuring out how do you broker and segment your influencers from micro to higher level to both create content to whitelist and to promote for you and create commission structures and everything that protects your CPA. And that's been really successful for us and something that we honestly didn't do for a while. It was kind of like a blessing and a curse with Little Spoon that we did have such a strong word of mouth and community because it it didn't force us to do a lot of other things um, for a pretty long time. What advice do you have for, say, a company that hasn't really worked with influencers before, but is just kind of approaching it right now? What, what, what would you tell them? I would say think about like segmenting your influencers and what you want from them. Um, you know, for many companies, especially if you have a service or product you can give away, you might choose to go after some of the smaller influencers to do an exchange of services and have them post. And that's more around just get a lot of them on board, cultivate almost like a, a small influencer community, similar to how you would treat a customer base um, and leverage them for that purpose, as well as for content. You know, then moving up the chain, it becomes more about paid influencer deals and, and reach. And so that's kind of, you know, thinking about and experimenting with how do you find your heavy hitters and how do you find, you know, budget to do the experimenting for those larger influencer following and kind of knowing that while paid influencers are can, is a performance marketing channel. It's it's pretty unreliable. So you need to like be very programmatic around, okay, this month, I know these two influencers are going to perform. These 10 are like a crapshoot. So I'm not going to rely on my conversions from those 10, which means I have to like double down on something else and sort of cushion it with a different, you know, channel or spend or campaign that you're running to help balance that out. Um, and that's really coming from, and I, I really don't think any company should be out there treating customer acquisition purely for volume at these days, like that, that age is over. Like you need to focus on like your unit economics. You should know exactly when you're paying back on that customer and you should never, you, you should never blindly sacrifice on, you know, the economics just for volume. And so paying attention really early to find that formula and balance that out when you're testing an influencer, because it can get expensive um, is really important. By the same nature, though, don't be too frugal. Like you need to give enough money to see an experiment run through. I know that's really annoying to hear because it's like be careful, but like don't be careful. But this is this is why we're all uh, entrepreneurs. We like we like the we like the seemingly impossible problems, right? Absolutely, Lisa. Leaning into influencers, um, trying TikTok, uh, building a community, doing any of these things outside of like. Facebook ads or SEO, right? Like there's a standard playbook and then there's an experimental playbook. Like what advice do you have for companies to, 
I, I guess like how they should think about the percentage of effort, time, resources, money, et cetera, that goes into things that they don't need to do now, but probably should explore before the other thing runs its course. Yeah, I mean, that is so hard to do. And, you know, I think the the higher level takeaway that I've learned over the years is like, have rules for yourself, but be malleable, be open and responsive to the environment. Uh, that being said, I've never had a rule of thumb play out in more arenas in more experiences, whether it's startup, big company, pro any problem than the 80-20 rule. Like there's a reason it's a rule. Um, literally it holds for almost everything I've ever, I've tried to, just because I wanna be like devil's advocate, I've like tried to up, upstand it. Um, but I think that like more or less plays, whether it's 80-20, 70-30, like, you should be focusing most of your efforts on like the big needle movers, the things that are working, building that engine, and then the other 20 to 30% of like, what's the future stuff? How do I like future proof? How do I invest in some potential experiments or longer term plays um, for the business? Love that. People are calling this a masterclass in marketing in the comments. So I think, <laughs> I, I think we're giving the, uh, the, the people what they wanted out of this session. Lisa, this has been awesome. Happy. That's great. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to to be with you guys. Um, I, I got to say, I think you two, uh, you and Jamie share a background. Is this right in Jamie Penn Wharton? Yeah, Penn Wharton. Let's go Quakers. Let's go. I even <laughs> Quaker High School, so it runs to you. Wow. <laughs> Awesome. Lisa, this was wonderful. Thank you. I wish we could go for uh, so much longer, but we have a five minute break before our next session to end the day with Seth Godin. Um, I, I definitely will follow up with you because uh, this has been a lot of fun. That sounds great. And if anybody has, has questions, feel free to reach out on, on LinkedIn or Instagram or something like that. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I love, love all entrepreneurs and, and everyone solving problems. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lisa. Bye everyone. Hey, thanks for listening to Organized Chaos. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, or share it with anyone in your network that you think could benefit from this information. For episode show notes, podcast recaps, and tons of other small business news and inspiration, check out the manual. That's trainual.com backslash manual.